Beloved, hasn't the Lord been kind and patient with us despite our failures this week? He has, hasn't he? He's an unchanging God, and we can rejoice that our Heavenly Father is merciful and loving towards his children. David puts it like this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And brothers and sisters, this great comfort that we receive from God's word ought to then compel us to minister mercy and kindness to others for their joy. And this is what we'll consider in our passage this morning. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me in your copy of God's word to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, all the way to chapter 2, verse 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 23 to chapter 2, verse 4. Listen now to God's holy word. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for you are the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. O oh Lord, comfort us now with the truth of your word and minister to our needs by the power of your spirit. Remind us of the boundless, lavish love of Christ so that our hearts may be filled with joy and our hands eager to serve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Friends, have you ever considered that God is concerned about your joy? If you haven't thought about that, then I'm glad you're here this morning, because I want you to see in this passage that as God comforts his people, as he encourages us through faith in his word to do what is God-glorifying, he produces joy in our hearts. And so one of the ways that you can think of your ministry as a member in this local church is to see yourself as one who labors for the spiritual joy of others. But that's not an easy task, is it? The Bible never tells us that that is an easy task. In fact, it tells us quite the opposite, that Christian ministry is hard, and it involves much affliction and discouragement and disappointment. Our ministry is to other sinners just like us, and we are called to the hard duty of loving brothers and sisters who sometimes misjudge us, misunderstand us, and even cause us much pain and distress. This is true for members. and It's also true for Christian leaders, for pastors, because they too are members of the body of Christ. Listen to the Puritan John Flavel describe what faithful ministry is like. He writes, the labors of ministry are fitly compared to the toil of men in harvest, to the labors of a woman in travail, and to the agonies of soldiers in the extremities of battle. Beloved, ministering to one another in truth and in love is hard work. It's painful toil, but it's good work. It's good work. It's Christ-like work. You're discipling, you're counseling, you're one anothering, those difficult conversations, those constant prayers, those frequent follow-up meetings, all of it will involve self-denial and discipline and affliction. And the only way we can do what the Lord has called us to do 
and remain steadfast while doing it is to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, to receive comfort from his word, to dwell on the cross where we can see God's mercy and his great love for his church. This is how we can be truthful and yet merciful. This is how we can be loving and yet patient. This is how we can be sorrowful and yet rejoicing. Now the Apostle Paul was certainly familiar with suffering in ministry, wasn't he? Apart from opposition from unbelievers, he also suffered at the hands of believers, especially the church at Corinth. And this is how things unfolded at Corinth. So if you're new to this series, this is what happened at Corinth. Certain Jewish men who claimed to be apostles infiltrated the church and they won the members over, not because they were godly and sincere, but because they were very impressive by cultural standards. And in an attempt to establish their leadership at the church, they turned the hearts of the Corinthians against Paul. They said that Paul was not worthy to be called an apostle because his life was marked by suffering and shame. They even began to attack his character. And one of the things that they pointed out to the church was the fact that Paul changed his travel plans. Now, how did they use that against him? You see, in an earlier letter, that's 1 Corinthians, Paul had informed the congregation that he would stay in Ephesus till Pentecost and then, Lord willing, visit them later in the year. But when he heard how bad things were at Corinth because of these false apostles, he made a quick visit to that church and that turned out to be very painful. Paul was openly and, uh, and sinfully opposed by a member while the rest of the congregation stood by and did nothing. And so as a result of this, Paul left Corinth feeling very saddened. And when the time came for him to visit the Corinthians, as per his original plan, Paul decided not to. Instead, with great anguish and tears, he wrote the Corinthians a letter calling them to repent and be reconciled to him. Now, this was not a small issue. I want you to realize that, because this will come up as we go through the text. This was not a small issue. As far as Paul was concerned, they had spurned and sinned against the Lord himself by rejecting the authority of his apostles. To reject Paul, to reject his apostolic word, was to reject God's word. Now when you get to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, Paul was worried that just as the serpent deceived Eve in Genesis 3, these Corinthians would be led astray and away from Christ. By listening to these men, they were in danger of receiving a different Jesus and a different gospel. And so he calls these men servants of Satan disguised as servants of righteousness. But in another sense, these people had personally sinned against Paul as their pastor. And he loved them and he was deeply wounded by this. And after several months had passed by, Titus, who delivered that letter, brought good news to Paul that many members in the congregation had repented. They had once again turned back to Paul and embraced him as their apostle. As their apostle. Furthermore, they had also disciplined the man who had opposed Paul. And so in response to what he heard from Titus, Paul wrote this letter, 2 Corinthians. And in this letter, Paul does two things. One, he continues to minister God's grace through the words of this letter to those who are still unrepentant and hostile. And two, he addresses the criticisms of these false apostles. You see, they had called Paul unreliable because he had changed his plan. They questioned the purity of his motives. But Paul, in chapter 1, verses 12 to 22, responds by saying that his conscience was clear. He had always behaved towards them in holiness and godly sincerity. And even though he had changed his plans, they could rely on his word because he was a true apostle, commissioned by God to speak the very words of Christ. And just as Paul's original intent for his visit was to minister God's grace to them, so now, through the apostolic word, through the words of this letter, he hopes that they would be reconciled to him. Just think about it. Even though this man had suffered great hardship in Asia and suffered affliction because of the Corinthian opposition, out of the great comfort he had received from the Lord, in his weakness, he continued to minister to the Corinthians. And friends, I wonder if, if you and I would do the same if we were facing something similar. You see, too often as Christians, we use our personal hardships as excuses to, to pull away from the regular life and fellowship of the church, don't we? 
But according to God's word in 2 Corinthians, God uses his word speaking people to minister comfort to those who need it. And those who receive it, receive that comfort in order to comfort others. That's his wise design for our spiritual growth. Beloved, this means that our afflictions are not our own. They are to be shared just as our comfort is to be shared. Now Paul is confident in this letter that the Corinthians will receive his words by faith. After all, Titus had already informed him that a majority had repented. And that work of God in these Christians brought comfort to his own soul. You can see that in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 13. So Paul is confident about the grace of God at work in their lives. And you can see him express this confidence in chapter 1 verse 14. He writes, on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So Paul had, had not only he had a, a high view of what it meant to be a Christian and an apostle, he also had a high view of the church and what God was doing at the church through his apostolic word. And so after expressing his confidence in, in God's grace and his faithfulness and the inseparability of the apostolic word and the church for its spiritual health, Paul now turns to tell the Corinthians the reason why he changed his mind and decided not to visit them. Now, as we look at this text, we will learn that Paul desires to see the comfort of God at work in this congregation. He desires to see the gospel at work in their lives. And this can then instruct us, you and I, this can then instruct us how to minister to one another. And so the first principle that ought to drive our ministry, the first truth as we remember that the God of the gospel is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, here it is. We work for each other's joy. We work for each other's joy. That's the first principle. The second point or principle is that we labor in love. So two points if you're taking notes. We work for each other's joy and we labor in love. In love. Consider that first principle. Look at verse 23. Paul says, But I call God to witness against me. Now, in chapter 1, verse 12, we saw that Paul drew our attention to the witness or the testimony of his conscience. And now he draws our attention to another witness, God Himself. Notice that the text start with, starts with that word, but. After making the case that he is as reliable as his Savior is truthful and reliable, and after making the case that this God who fulfilled every promise in Christ is the same God who united both Paul and the Corinthians together through the preaching of the apostolic word, Paul says, but if you still have doubts, I have another witness. I am willing to put my soul on trial before God. And I am telling you that the reason I did not come was not because I was double-minded or wavering or vacillating. It was not because I was making plans according to the flesh as some accuse me of. But it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. You see, when Paul made that emergency visit to Corinth, he faced such hostile opposition that he left in great anguish and he wrote them a letter calling them to repent of their arrogance and be reconciled to him. In fact, I think we get a glimpse of what Paul might have encountered in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 20. Look ahead to chapter 12 and verse 20. Here, Paul says that if they don't repent, then he might come and find these problems at the church. Now, this may indicate that this was what he found when he made his second visit, that painful visit. Look at chapter 12, verse 20. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps they may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. All the perfect ingredients you need. To destroy your church. And Paul says. It was to spare you that I refrained. I held back. I held myself back from coming again to Corinth. 
Now, this does not mean that when people sin against you in the church, when they say an unkind word or something sinfully inappropriate, when they slander you or wound you in anger with their words, it doesn't mean that you avoid them. No, you always address the sin. That's the loving thing to do. Don't pretend that nothing happened. Communicate truthfully. Remember that Paul, after he was sinned against and left Corinth, wrote to them a letter of truthful rebuke, calling them to repent. He addressed the problem. And far from shying away from it, this letter contains some really hard words. They were words of love. It caused these members to grieve, but that grief was a good kind of grief. It was a grief that led to repentance. We see this in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 to 9. So look, look ahead to chapter 7, verses 8 to 9. Here's what he says. <clears throat> For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Here's what he means. Let me paraphrase that for you. Paul is saying, I know that that was a hard letter to read, and I knew that would sadden you and cause you distress. In fact, I regretted it, but only for a little while. I don't regret it now. I rejoice, not because I enjoy seeing you in pain, but because I see that that grief produced repentance, and in that I rejoice. So brothers and sisters, Scripture never tells us not to address sin or to avoid conflict. If we love Jesus and we love his gospel, we ought to long to see the power of his reconciling gospel at work among members of the body. That's why Paul wrote that letter. To minister God's grace to them. Beloved, when you address sin in the body, when you encourage members, other members towards repentance, as you hold out God's word to them, when you remind people that their behavior does not glorify Christ but reviles God's word, when you call them to cast away worldly wisdom and embrace the wisdom of the cross, then you are bringing the gospel to bear on their lives. You are engaging in the ministry of mercy and comfort. It was after he sent that letter he decided not to visit. The text says it was to spare them. He wanted to save them from the distress of another direct apostolic confrontation because that would have necessitated some sort of immediate discipline. You see, Paul had already addressed the issues and he had rebuked them. He decided to spare them in what sense? In this sense. He wanted the word of the gospel to work in their hearts so that they would by themselves change and do the right thing. You see, Paul was being merciful. He was sparing them. In this sense, he was being patient. He was being patient. See, Paul knew the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Paul, as an apostle and pastor, knew this congregation very well. And if there was one thing he was sure of, is that he was convinced. He was convinced that they were Christians. That's how he addresses them. Chapter 1, to the church of God. Verse 2, it is God who established us, us with you in Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 21. Brothers, genuine Christians can be led astray and behave sinfully. We see that with these Corinthian Christians, don't we? They were certainly led astray by these false apostles, and yet because of his history with this congregation, because of the news of their partial understanding, Paul was confident about their standing in Christ. Beloved, don't be quick to write off a brother or sister too quickly. Paul wasn't about to do that. This is why he decided to wait till he received the good news of their repentance from Titus. This sparing, as he calls it, 
This sparing is not about being negligent to discipline. This is about patient waiting. We know this because of chapter 13, verse 2. Look at chapter 13, verse 2. Here Paul says, if the rest of them don't repent, then when he comes again on his third visit, he will not spare them. In fact, he says, that's what I told you on my second visit, that painful visit. Look at the verse. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. This is not about being negligent to discipline. This is about being patient for repentance. Now, there were times when, because of the nature of the sin and the way that it was affecting others, Paul called for corrective discipline even when he was absent. You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with the case of the man who was in unrepentant sexual immorality of a kind that was not even tolerated among unbelievers. And that was going on for a long time. And the church was tolerating it and they were proud of their tolerance. In that case, Paul called for an immediate removal. And brothers and sisters, there are times in the life of a congregation when we too must act in removing an unrepentant member in love, in obedience to Jesus, and in order to preserve the holiness and the unity of the church. There are times when we must do that, when somebody who claims to be a Christian is no longer behaving like one. But normally, normally this takes time. Just think about how God's mercy and patience is displayed even in his instruction to the church concerning discipline and reconciliation. Matthew 18, 15 to 17. You're all familiar with this passage. Matthew 18, 15 to 17. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Don't write him a letter. Don't send him an email or WhatsApp him. Go and tell him or her face to face so that the person you are talking to can see your face, see your emotions, hear the tone of your voice. Christian ministry is ministry in the flesh. Oh, why can't I write a letter like Paul? Because A, you're not Paul. You're not an apostle. And B, Paul is describing what he did so that we can learn what was driving him. He's not prescribing to us a method. Jesus is prescribing to us a method. He's telling us what to do. Notice how God's mercy and patience is displayed in the process. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I don't know how many meetings that's going to take, how you're going to work out your schedules, how long that process is going to go. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along. Talk about it. Pray about it. Persuade him. I don't know how long that's going to take. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's no sloppy work there. Careful, prayerful. We want to define sin according to the scriptures and not according to our preference. This takes time. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. It takes time to call for a meeting, doesn't it? Tell it to the gathered assembly and if he refuses to listen even to the church let him be to you as a gentile and tax collector can you can you hear god's mercy and patience in that process if you've been a member at this church and have witnessed a case of church discipline then you know it's not something that we take lightly it weighs on us it's a sobering task that causes much anguish in the hearts of your pastors as well as your own. You know this. But you also know that this takes time. It takes the patient ministry of the word by various members. It takes much pleading and much prayer. 
there have been cases of unrepentant immorality that have taken a few months. But there have also been cases where people have refused to gather with the church and worship God. And this has sometimes taken even a year. When some believers were wondering why Jesus is taking so long to come back, Peter tells them this in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. He is patient toward you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter is speaking to Christians. You see, Paul chose not to come because he was patiently waiting for them to repent, to respond to his letter. Beloved, just as the Lord is patient with you every day, we should be patient to see fruit in the lives of others, even if they have sinned against us. Even if they have sinned against us. Those who do not know God's mercy in Christ cannot extend mercy to others. Friends, our salvation is nothing but the mercy of God given to us in Jesus Christ. God bears witness. He testifies in his incorruptible word that we are corrupted, that we are sinners, that we have turned away from his goodness, that we have dishonored and sinned against him, and all of mankind is spiritually dead in their sins and are subject to his holy wrath. But God, being rich in what? Mercy. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Friends, this is the gospel of God's mercy. See, God takes people who are wicked and vindictive, and he changes them by the power of the gospel into people who are merciful and kind and loving. Now, if you're not a Christian, we want you to recognize that you are a sinner who stands under God's holy judgment. Mercy is not something that we are entitled to. Judgment is what we are entitled to because we have sinned against God. But God, being rich in mercy, sent us a Savior. He sent us His Son, the Lord Jesus, who is God in the flesh, and He died on the cross bearing the sins of His people for all who would repent and put their faith in Him alone. And on the third day, he rose from the dead to make us spiritually alive. He did this so that those who believe in him alone may receive God's mercy instead of his judgment. Friend, I want to call on you this morning, if you're not a believer, to cast yourself on God's mercy. The Bible says in Proverbs 28, 13, that whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. But perhaps you're here and, and you know you're a sinner, but you still think that there's some good in you. You're not as bad as that sinner. That you're better than others. Well, friend, this is what the Bible calls self-righteousness. And God is clear in his word that those who justify themselves like this will not receive his mercy. You know, Jesus once told a story about people who thought like this. The story appears in Luke 18, verses 10 to 14. Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, a religious man who thought he was good. And the other, a tax collector, someone whose sins were very obvious to society. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I give away my money. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. 
but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So friend, if you're not a Christian, humble yourself before this God. Acknowledge your sin to him and cast yourself on his mercy that he offers to you in his son, Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and turn to him and you will find that he will forgive you of all your sins and renew his mercies to you every day. They will be new every morning. The Apostle Paul was familiar with God's mercy. He had received God's mercy in Christ. He had received his merciful comfort in the midst of all his affliction. And he says to the Corinthians, I wasn't fickle. I had a good gospel reason for not coming. It was to spare you. But then Paul suddenly remembers what these false apostles were capable of saying. Someone might have said, oh, look at the way Paul writes. I wanted to spare you. So harsh, so bossy. Look at him, lording it over you. I wanted to spare you. What does he think of himself? And so Paul says in verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith. They were certainly lording it over their faith. Oh, look at... Um, Look at chapter 11. Or chapter 12, where they were boasting in their flesh and bossing the members around. Chapter 11, verse 20. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. That's what they were doing. And they were accusing Paul. And Paul says in verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, and by your faith he means their faith in the gospel, their Christian faith. Paul is not saying, I was planning to beat the repentance out of you to purify your faith, but I'll spare you. No, that's not what he was saying. We don't rule or dominate or control your faith. Not that we lord it over your faith. And the, the we here probably refers to himself and Silvanus and Timothy, those who preach the gospel among them, and work for their spiritual upbuilding. But we work with you, he says, for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. In other words, the reason you stand firm, the reason you endure, is your faith. Or as one translation puts it, by faith you stand. Your faith endures because it is in Christ Jesus. He sustains. He empowers. He enables you to repent. Our job is to work with you. To shepherd you. To come alongside of you. And through the ministry of the apostolic word. To encourage you. To do what? What does Paul want them to do? He wants them to repent and reconcile and be restored. And what does he see as the outcome of that work? Joy. Joy, beloved, when you work with one another to, to correct and to convict, to counsel, to rebuke, to plead, to train, to exhort and to call to repentance, and you do it all through the ministry of the word, when you do that, you are working for each other's joy. This is what ordinary Christian ministry in a local church looks like. I think we're often oblivious to this as we labor together. Because we are sinners and are so self-centered and so culturally minded, repentance and change often feels like we're undergoing a tooth extraction. If we're honest, very often that's what it feels like. And I understand that one aspect of this is hard because we must do battle against sin and our idols. But beloved, we ought to think differently and feel differently. We must put on the mind of Christ. The pursuit of repentance and change, reconciliation and restoration will produce in you by the Spirit of Christ. As you submit to the counsel of the Word, it will produce in you great joy. 
great joy. Or think about that passage we read, Psalm 32. When David did not confess his sins and repent, there was much what? Groaning. But when he turned to the Lord, repented and was forgiven, how does the psalm end? Psalm 32 verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So be eager to repent and change because there's great joy that awaits you when you do. So when you see a brother or sister coming toward you, approaching you, so that they can talk to you about your sin, don't put up a wall. Don't run away. Don't see them as your enemy. They are co-workers for your joy. For your joy. And trust me, if they have mustered up the courage to enter into this hard conversation with you for your joy, and they love Jesus and they love you. Beloved, your pastors love you. And we want to work with you for your joy. We don't want to control you. We want to counsel you. We don't want our relationship with you to be transactional. We want it to be tender and affectionate. Our authority is derivative. It is grounded in this book, in the word of Christ. And here's what the word says to elders, to pastors. First, First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, don't be in it for the money, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, don't be spiritual Hitlers, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I say this to my elders. Brothers, what could be a greater privilege than to work for the joy of the bride of Christ. And you, beloved, members of Grace Church, when you receive the counsel of the word through your pastors, you are being God's instruments for our joy. Your rejections, your refusals, your stubbornness, your pride makes us groan in anguish. But your obedience to the Lord causes our hearts to rejoice. And oh, the sweet comfort of that joy to hear a sister say to another sister, I realize I was arrogant and self-centered and I see how my words wounded you. Please forgive me. Or to hear a brother say that over the past few months, my love for Jesus has grown so much that I no longer feel tempted towards that sin that I used to give into. Or to hear another one say that I'm, I know I'm shy, but if Jesus calls me to, to minister to others and, and open up my home, how can my Savior ask me to do anything that would be harmful for me or for others? That gives me great joy to hear that. Great joy. Repentance and reconciliation. Restoration and transformation produces joy. Brothers and sisters, won't you work with us? for our joy as we work with you for yours? Remember, your pastors are also members of the body. And here's what the word says to members. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will, give, who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. But that would be of no advantage to you. You know, Paul wanted to see their joy. He didn't want to experience the pain of confronting again a people who are still unrepentant and hostile towards him. Look at the next verse, chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. I resolved to not come to you again because I did not want 
a repeat performance. I did not want an action replay of what happened the last time. It was not edifying for you or for me. Look at the next verse. For I, for if I cause you pain, you know, notice the contrast between pain and joy in this passage. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I, I have pained? See, here's why that visit would have been spiritually unhelpful to both Paul and the Corinthians. Remember, they were the ones who had sinned against him and he had written this letter of rebuke to them and was waiting in hope. And if he had visited them prematurely, it would have necessitated some sort of disciplinary action on his part. He would have caused them grief. And then as a result of that, there would have been no one to make him glad. Or as the NIV puts it, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? In other words, Paul is saying, if I had come and grieved you, you wouldn't have repented and you wouldn't have been feel, filled with joy. And seeing that, I wouldn't have been filled with joy. Somehow Paul knew that. And that's why he wrote them a letter out of love. Mercy was demonstrated by not coming. Love was demonstrated by writing. And that brings us to our second and final point. The second principle that ought to drive our ministry to one another is love. Number one, we work for each other's joy. And number two, we labor in love. Now we looked at Paul's reason for his cancel trip. Now he tells us the reason for writing that letter of rebuke. Look at verse three. And I wrote as I did, meaning in the way that I did. So that, this is the purpose for that letter of rebuke, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. Now, this is a bit of an odd construction. Uh, Paul is actually reflecting back on the purpose of his writing, and he's speaking of the result that he hopes for. Paul is simply saying, I wrote this letter so that when I came, or in the event of my coming to you, I would not have to suffer grief from the very people who should be causing or giving me joy. Note that obligatory language, should have made me rejoice. This is the language of duty. And then he adds this, <clears throat> for I felt sure of all of you. That's why I wrote that my joy would be the joy of you all. Friends, again, this takes us back to that spiritual reality that God had, has established between Paul and the Corinthians in Christ. That's what the church is. Beloved, the church is a society of mutual comfort and mutual joy. We are obligated to do this. This is our covenant responsibility towards one another. And sadly... And sadly, some of you have embraced a lifestyle that makes it impossible for you to do this. Paul says, I didn't come, but I wrote a letter because I knew that if I came, there would be groaning for me and not joy when instead you should be working for my joy, even as I do for yours. And I was sure that my letter would have this effect on you and give me joy as your pastor. And my joy means joy for you. Beloved, joy in Christ as the fruit of the Spirit is something that God meant for us to share. And when we share it, it multiplies. It multiplies. So have confidence in God's word as you minister to one another, as you labor with each other, as you work hard, as you bring the truth of the gospel to bear on each other's lives. For in the gospel, we have tidings of comfort and joy. Not just on Christmas Day, but every day. Not only did Paul write this letter with the aim of it, producing reconciliation and mutual joy between him and the church, but he also wants them to know that even though that this was a hard letter, it was a demonstration of his love for them. And it was a tender, Christ-like love. Look at verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, of heart 
and with many tears. You know, that visit, which he called a painful visit, had taken quite a toll on Paul. The people who should have brought joy and comfort to Paul brought him a great deal of pain and had wounded him in such a way that it brought him to tears. It caused him great emotional turmoil. And that letter was, was birthed out of wounded love. It was birthed out of wounded love in order to produce repentance and joy in the Corinthians. I wrote out of much affliction, not to cause you pain, not to stick it to you and put you in your place and vindicate my power and authority. No, not to cause you pain, even though they caused him pain. But to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. See, here we get a glimpse into the pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul. And he says, even though that letter may have been hard to read, I want you to know that it was out of much distress and tears. And I did it because I wanted you to know that I love you abundantly. That's not a bad thing to say when you're meeting with someone and you're about to confront, confront their sin. Brother, sister, I love you. And that's why I must tell you this. Friends, if you are wondering how wounded love can minister like this, the answer is found in something that we've already considered in chapter 1. In all his affliction, the Lord taught Paul to rely on the one who raises the dead. You see, Paul knew the love of his Savior, a love that sought the best interests of others, even when spurned. After all, it was Paul who had written to the Corinthians earlier in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 14, Let all that you do be done in love. Or take 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, Love bears all things. It is tenacious. It doesn't easily quit on people, even when it is wounded, when it is slandered, when it is opposed, when it is rejected, when it is afflicted, it seeks to do good. Beloved, that should remind you of Jesus and his love. You see, when you're sinned against, out of the crushing affliction of wounded love, God can not only minister comfort to your soul through the gospel, but he can also minister comfort through you as you place the demands of the gospel on the heart of the one who has caused you pain. You see, without this kind of love, your focus will only be on yourself and your loss and your vindication. But when you turn away from yourself and look to your Savior, out of your pain and anguish and discouragement, He can and He will enable the best kind of ministry in a local church. And through your ministry, people will be able to see gospel love, wounded love at work. Now, in conclusion, let me just say this. Some of you have never heard this. Some of you have come to us from churches where members and pastors have never been involved in your lives. Perhaps never pointed out to you that you were thinking or behaving in a way that was sinful and unbecoming of a Christian. Perhaps some of you have assumed that, that in the church we relate to one another in the same way that non-Christians relate to one another. If that has been your experience, then I'm deeply sorry that this happened to you. Those pastors and those churches will have to give an account. Friends, our goal is to lean on the scriptures. It is to love you like how Christ loved us. Not by ignoring sins, but by denying himself and taking on sins in order to sanctify us. We want you to understand that this kind of love does not seek its own interests, but the interests of others. And if you love Jesus, so will you. So will you.
Beloved, love one another in such a way that you are willing to endure the discomfort of an awkward and painful conversation because you desire the joy of your brothers and sisters. And remember that when they rejoice, you too will rejoice. Remember your father's love for you during these moments of ministry. Would your heavenly father leave you to your hard-heartedness and sin? Or would he discipline you in order to train you in righteousness? Hebrews 12, 6, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Beloved, be like your heavenly father. Love like your savior. And minister the word to one another that you may walk in comfort and be filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we humble ourselves before you and ask you for help as we seek to minister to one another. Oh Lord, let us not look at repentance and reconciliation and restoration the transformation that your word calls for in our lives. Let us not look at that as something to be avoided, but to remember that through it all, you work in our hearts and you produce joy by the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, help us love one another so that we would labor for each other's joy. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would not be like that horse or mule without understanding, but that we would confess our sins and turn to Christ and be cleansed and rejoice in the great work that you are doing in our midst. Fill us with your spirit, O oh Lord, and cause our hearts to rejoice. In Jesus' name we pray.